This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. I've been privileged to talk with military historians on this podcast and look at military commanders of the past, like cavalry officers in the Civil War. Curtis LeMay in World War II, Cold War strategists, Vietnam Air Force officers. But in this episode is the first time I'm talking to an actual military officer who fought in a recent battle. Today's guest is Major Scott Husing. He led Echo Company in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2006 for nearly nine months in Ramadi, a city that saw some of the deadliest fighting in the Iraq War. This is right in the beginning of the surge, really at the low point of the Iraq war, where skirmishes are happening four or five times a day, the front line is everywhere, and the enemy doesn't wear any uniform. So Major Husing brings a lot of really fascinating perspective of what it's like to actually fight in war when the military is shifting from a Cold War model where you have two large militaries duking it out into asymmetrical warfare where you're fighting with insurgents and guerrillas. What's it like to go house to house with night vision goggles to slowly retake a city? What was it like working with Iraqi translators? How they overcame cultural differences in an Arab Muslim country? And here he actually mentions that he supports the idea of having women in combat units because he says housewives are basically omnipotent and know everything that's going on in a city. So if they could tap into their knowledge, that would really help out a lot. What it's like to lead Marines, some are 18 or 19 years old, and you lead them for a few months and watch them undergo a profound transformation. What it's like to readjust to life in the United States once your deployment ends. And how he was able to use unconventional warfare in order to adjust their tactics so they could be successful in Ramadi. Now, I do have to apologize with the audio in this episode. We had a couple of problems with our internet connection, so sometimes the audio can get a little bit splotchy, but... Major Husing was a pro. He rolled with it. We mentioned before the interview that, yeah, I've been in combat situations before where our audio is going in and out. So this is no big problem. He was really chill during it. 
If you give it a few minutes, I think your brain will adjust to it and it won't be any problem. And I think it's definitely worth sitting through because the stories he tells are really amazing. So one small caveat there for this episode. Major Husing is also the author of the new book, Echo and Ramadi, the first-hand story of the U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Major Scott Husing. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Major Husing, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. Great to be here. Something that you've touched on before in the past <laughs> is the portrayal of the military and media. And you've talked about how you know people who work with Hollywood to do their best to portray it correctly. So, but for someone like me, who's never been in the military, I can't help but have my thoughts of what military life is like and combat experience like with images of um, the Hurt Locker or Black Hawk Down. So what's your take on the media portrayal of the military? Is it good? Is it bad? Does it get anything wrong that you've noticed? Well, I think that there's a lot of good examples of, the, not only throughout our history, World War II and Vietnam, and even the recent war that we're in now is, uh, you know, there's a lot of good examples. So I, I never want to use any platform as an opportunity to throw people under the bus for what doesn't work. But, um, you know, there's there's plenty of great examples out there. Um, you know, Saving Private Ryan was a great example from World War II. We Were Soldiers uh, was a great example from Vietnam. Um, I, I actually think that the, the Hurt Locker was um, well done in, in some some areas. Um, I, I think that American Sniper, that it was the story of Chris Kyle written by Scott McEwen, was a another great example um, of what what some of the soldiers and, and Marines and, and uh, warfighters go through. Um, although some are singular in nature. Um, the, the stories are really emblematic of what what people go through in those types of environments. And, and those are depictions of the harshest environments that you can really ever, ever imagine. And it's difficult to capture that on the big screen or in a miniseries um, and to really capture that feeling, that emotion of what people are going through. And I, I never used to it when people would say, oh, the book is so much better until I guess I wrote a book, Echo and Ramadi. <laughs> realize that it is different because you are able to provide the reader and your audience that story of the people. And for me, that's probably what is hard to capture on TV or on the big screen is the emotion and the feeling because it gets filtered through so many different layers. And that's just the nature of, of film and TV production. And it's, You've got limited uh, amount of time to depict that. So there's there's great examples, and I, I think in the last um, you know couple, couple decades we've had so many great pe- people, and some who I call friends like Dale Dye and, and Roccolati, who provide uh, technical advising um, to Hollywood and TV. They really do a phenomenal job at making sure they get it right, or as best they can, because at the end of the day, 
in, in Hollywood. Their intent is to entertain. And that's what people want to, want to go see. So I think there's a lot of good examples. But for me, when I wrote Echo and Ramadi, the emotion and the feeling and the people were what mattered to me most. I don't like to write about things or events so much as I do the people. And that's really what makes Echo and Ramadi different is that it's not just a war story. It's about the people and it's about the families that supported us while we fought and the ones that still continue to support us today, our amazing network of, of gold star families that are always there for us. And that's really um, something that was very, very important to me when I wrote my story. And although I may not have this grand cinematic vision for, for my book, but other, other people do, they, they, they've read it and they say, man, you know, it's a cool title, you know, Echo Normati, it just sounds like a movie. And they, they try and talk to me about it. And, uh, uh, maybe it's because I'm so close to it and it is my story and I'm a little, little humble in that regard that, um, you know, I take it as a, as a high compliment, but, um, at the end of the day, the reason I wrote the book was to honor the spirit and sacrifices of the Marines soldiers that fought in the families that supported us and, and the families that lost their, their, their Marines, um, while we were fighting in the deadliest city of Iraq in 2006. Yeah, and I really want to dig into your perspective of what it was like on the street level. Before that, could we back up and can you tell me, from when you enlisted into the Marines until Ramadi, what was your story on how you eventually got there in 2006? I enlisted in the Marine Corps in um, er, in late 1988 on a delayed entry program. Um, as a young enlisted guy, I served in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then after uh, a not you know a not so stellar high school career, you know I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And then um, when I finished my first enlistment, I, I went to college at Illinois State, and then got my commission. And the whole time I was um, also in the the reserves while I was going to college, so I always stayed very connected to the Marine Corps, and I never really thought it was going to be this you know twenty four year career, but. After I graduated and got my commission as an officer, um, you know, I served in various um, positions of leadership and command. And then in 2006, after graduating my career level school that prepares captains to take command, uh, I was selected to go to 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, and I was assigned to Echo Company, one of the uh, rifle companies in, in that unit as their commander. And uh, let's take a 10,000-foot view and what's happening in Ramadi in 2006 before Echo Company comes in? Why is it the hotspot of insurgent activity? And what are the main mission objectives in Ramadi at this time? Well, since the initial invasion um, after 9-11 from Afghanistan into Iraq, uh, what was what was happening on the ground um, in Iraq is from a, from a macro perspective, um, and even at even at the ground level, what I try to tell people in the simplest terms is it's best equated to like a giant game of whack-a-mole <laughs> in that country. And each city had these pockets of resistance that would rise up, they would make a stand, and they would fight. Um, and, and we would ultimately hammer them down into the ground because although they were very adept, uh, 
some of the insurgent fighters are very well trained. They knew at the end of the day, they couldn't stand toe to toe with the US military presence. We're just too strong. We're just too uh, powerful. Uh, we have the best technology, but even our best technology, they'd always find ways around it because they would go to the basics and they would go to the rudimentary level of, of fighting in, you know, in an insurgent war, an asymmetric war, where the front line is everywhere. I mean, we literally lived out in the city in, in Ramadi in 2006. So that's what brought us to, to that area. In, in Al-Anbar province in the western section of Iraq, that's where the, the largest pockets of resistance were. And they were making a stand in cities like um, you know, Najaf and Fallujah and then ultimately Ramadi. And in 2006, President George W. Bush and David Petraeus ordered the surge strategy to flood the battle space with tens of thousands of additional troops in hopes of covering down on every possible hole in that country where, where they could pop up. So we wanted to apply this even pressure in all of those hotbeds of insurgency to really gain ground and hold that ground so we, we weren't constantly playing that game of whack-a-mole, so to speak. In 2006, it just so happened that Ramadi was where they decided to make a stand. And that's no secret because it's the capital of Alambar province, and that's where they wanted to fight us. One thing you've talked about is engaging in unconventional warfare with Echo Company. Before this, what was conventional warfare? Are there still Cold War tactics being used or from uh, Operation Desert Storm? So what was the status quo, and how did you have to work to get outside of that? Well, I jokingly say that the U.S. military operates off the best doctrine that 1980 had to offer because <laughs> we have been engaged across the spectrum of warfare for so many years now that the doctrine that we that we work off is dated. However, I, I will caveat that by saying we are extremely skilled as a U.S. military to adapt to those changes despite having a formal plan. So conventional warfare, what what your listeners might think of on the open battlefield with you know the tanks and the Foley Gap and trench warfare, that's very, very different when you're fighting an insurgency. Because again, the front line is everywhere. When you live amongst the people and you fight a, a, a faceless enemy that wears no uniform, that is everywhere, that blends in with the population. So within the U.S. military, and especially within the Marine Corps, they develop programs and, and training systems to meet the specific needs of what's going on in the battlefield. And our Marines and soldiers and, and sailors, they receive the best training, uh, despite what you see on mainstream media today, Scott, about the lack of funding. And it was it, 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 is, it is a problem. And I was very pleased to see General Mattis on TV today addressing that to Congress about the need for funding for U.S. military, because there are a lot of programs where we're stretched so thin, we need to improve on that. But we were well-trained. We still adapt, and we, and we, we I like to quote a, a friend of mine, Pete Munson, he says, you know, uh, you know, do what matters with, with less. He's like, do, do, it, do the right things with less. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed you've written about. The, there's the training, and this is something that when you're getting into Ramadi, 
that you almost have to work outside of, of using people to come into the combat zone that might be trained for a different role. And I think you've talked about sailors, airmen, contractors. And uh, can you tell me more about that? I thought that was uh, a really interesting aspect of leading Echo Company. When, when we talk about, I, I use unconventional tactics. I, I, I don't think that like I was some renegade, you know, off the, you know, off the camp, you know, warfighter. That isn't what I did. When, when I say I, I was a little bit unconventional is that I was very willing to take uh, all of the enablers that were available in, in Ramadi at the time with me into the, the combat zone. So oftentimes um, you have specially trained personnel that are intelligence specialists. You have combat cameramen. You have... Um, tactical human exploitation teams, you've got military working dogs, interpreters, all of these people, uh, civil affairs uh, personnel that have these specialized skill sets. And oftentimes within our community in the infantry, because it, you know we swing a big club and we have a lot of bravado and, and all that, we often discount those people. But I saw the value in those people and even some of the civilian contractors that were had spent you know, 20, 30 years in special forces, Green Berets. I was very unabashed at, at asking these people what they could do for me on the battlefield. If they had a rifle and if they were trained to use it, they were welcome to come out with me on patrol and get out there. And I spread them out throughout my platoons. Um, and oh, there were times when I was well over 250 Marines, sailors, soldiers, airmen, as we come through the, the deadly streets of Ramadi, Iraq. They were enablers, and they brought a significant amount of uh, leverage to how we conducted operations effectively on the battlefield. So I think that when when I'm asked, how did I fight unconventionally, that's my answer to the question, is that I was very open to bringing all of those assets to, to, to bear on the enemy, and we did it uh, in a manner that was extremely effective, and, and the results... Were, were proven day after day as we fought and engaged the enemy, you know, two, three, four times a day. And we conducted eight to 10, sometimes 12 patrols a day as we went through every single house and structure and cleared it systematically to not only kill the enemy, but also to root out, you know, weapons and explosive materials and, and find intelligence on the, on the battlefield. It was, it was essential to our success. And I'm, extremely proud of, of what my Marines did and what all the soldiers and, and all those other enablers and uh, support um, Marines provided us as we fought. Could you describe that process when you're moving through building by building? How do you make sure that it um, stays, doesn't revert back to enemy hands? And then I'm guessing this is sort of, this is how you go through and gradually retake the city. W what does that process look like? Yeah. So the, the, Doctrinal term is simply clearing op clearance operations, and to do that, it's not rocket science. Uh, trust me, Scott. It's uh, <laughs> but it but it takes a yeah. It's a little bit where the you know art meets the science, and science meets art, I suppose. And and you you develop that after years and years of experience. And the way the way we did it was first understanding the culture, and I think that's extremely important when we talk about how we fought in Iraq by other wars is that this generation of warriors has a unique understanding of the culture. And I think that's an important part where we got from 
our strategic level planners and our general officers is that was key before we went in and fought. Because when you're fighting amongst the people, you've got a very high risk of collateral damage. And to say that everybody in Iraq is representative of the insurgency is just not true. I, I think that probably if you had to do a breakdown, 90% of the people wanted us there. They want stability. They wanted to lead a normal life as they knew it in that country. And then there was another 5% of you know, hardcore insurgents that, that wanted to fight, and they were supported probably by another 5% of co-belligerents who um, wanted to get in the game, so to speak, and, and, and really make a name for themselves. So when we conducted clearance operations in, within our areas of operations, it, simply you know, dividing up the battle space um, and assigning sectors to each one of the platoons, and, and they would literally spend hours uh, every night. And we operated almost exclusively at night because through our technology and optics and thermal imaging, we owned the night. I mean, it was, we just dominated everything we did. And it was just too dangerous to go out during the day. It was, it was, it was a lesson we learned the hard way when we first got into Ramadi, conducted daytime patrols is we would take a lot of enemy fire. We were constantly engaged. So we, we quickly shifted and adapted um, that, that combat hunter mindset and, and did everything at night. So we'd, we'd clear for, you know, when the sun went down and almost until the sun went up and we'd go from house to house, um, clearing every single structure, um, you know, rooting out weapons, uh, weapons caches, I mean, massive weapons caches with at times, you know, hundreds of weapons and, and you know, pieces of ordnance and explosives and, you know, we'd have to deal with those those points of friction along the, the, the on, along the road as, as we cleared. And sometimes that's it's a very lengthy, exhausting process when you're doing this. And as a commander of the unit, when you're managing over 250 independent souls on the battlefield, that's a challenge uh, because, you know, as one unit advances quicker than the other, you have to kind of manage uh, the movement as you clear in, in a them. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. One other thing that you talk about in the book, and I'm curious about this, was your relationship with locals, with local Iraqis that help you. And I think they're named, uh, their nickname in the book, um, the... Big Sam and Ford and others. So what was their contribution to your mission? 
So you're referring to my interpreters and um, I, I write an entire chapter about my interpreters and these are local Iraqi citizens who I always say are probably closely uh, akin to the patriots of our American Revolutionary War. I mean, these are young Iraqis, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, who really sacrificed everything, not just their their lives, but the, the safety of their families to commit themselves to the coalition forces to work as contracted, uh, paid interpreters for the coalition forces, for multinational forces that were in Iraq at the time. And what they did was so impressive. And we it wasn't a matter of if we needed interpreters. It was we absolutely need interpreters because there was a massive language barrier. Despite knowing the culture, like I spoke about before, we didn't have a lot of training in Arabic. Uh, there were very, very few Marines, very few soldiers that spoke fluent Arabic. So we relied heavily on their skills to be successful every day as we interacted with the, the local population. Because, you know, whether they were, um, you know, friendly locals that were providing us information as we cleared through the battlefield, or they were insurgents that we would detain on the battlefield and do on-the-spot interrogations, our interpreters were vital to our success. And I, they were brought into the team, and, and the Marines really embraced my philosophy of uh, how to use the interpreters and um, really make them, you know, honorary Marines. And I, I tell the story of two of my interpreters, but there were several others that um, are also mentioned in the book, Echo and Ramadi, uh, but Big Sam and Ford, that's their calls to protect their identity. Um, th th their story is really extraordinary. And it's an amazing story of sacrifice and commitment and dedication to help the multinational forces when others simply just weren't willing to. Just amazing. I lived in the Middle East a long time. And yeah, as I'm sure you very well know, there's vast cultural differences uh, between uh, the West and the Middle East. Uh, for you, were there any reoccurring things that came up a lot and you had to find a way to work through them, whether it's with your interpreters, whether it's through other civilians or other people you encountered during this time in Ramadi? Well, from a cultural level, I mean, there were probably two big challenges uh, when fighting at the tactical level. One, one was the religious sensitivities and the fact that the mosques were off limits to multinational forces for the most part. Um, there were times uh, that we were allowed um, into them when we had actionable intelligence. And the other thing would be the female population. So the the, the mosques were difficult, difficult uh, and it was, it was a point of contention for everybody that fought at that level. And, you, you know, we fought at the tactical level. We weren't fighting strategies. We weren't fighting, you know, concepts. We were fighting the enemy. That's what we were focused on. We were, we were there to, uh, you know, kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces. That was our mission. And we were there to do it and survive on the battlefield and take care of each other. And to not be able to go into certain areas was 
was frustrating at times because we knew full well that the insurgents knew that these sacred shrines were off limits to multinational forces. And they took advantage of that by stockpiling weapons. Um, they would hold essentially their command planning meetings inside the mosques. They would intimidate and threaten the local imams uh, to you know, broadcast hateful rhetoric from the minarets that, that towered over the entire city. So that was very challenging for us not to be able to to actually clear every single structure. And it, it, had we had that access, I think we may have been a little bit more effective. That's speculation. The second part about the female population is, again, from the strategic and maybe operational level planning, um, I don't think we had those enablers, like I talked about earlier in the program, Scott, along with us as, insofar as females. And I, I'm a huge advocate or fan of having females in combat roles. Uh, I don't, I don't subscribe to the notion that, you know, this is only a man's job. This is, you know, women are, should only do these roles and we are making significant improvements. In that. And I'm, I'm proud to say in, in my battalion, second battalion, fourth Marines, we've got two of the, the first female infantry officer in that battalion. We've got female, uh, enlisted in that battalion and it, it's phenomenal and i'm a fan because we would have been more effective if we would have had that along the way and i, and I say this because when we were out on patrols every single day and we were interacting with with the uh the local population the women stayed at home they very very traditional roles they took care of the kids and the kids are out in the city they're running around they're, they're playing and you remember this growing up you know, what you're doing during the day, you run around the neighborhood and you come home and what do you do? You tell mom everything. So mom had all these little feelers out running around the city of Iraq in Ramadi or in Fallujah or wherever the case may be. They would come home and they'd tell mom everything because the men all gathered at, uh, you know, the, the, the local mosque or, you know, gathering spot. And then they would come home at night. But if and we weren't allowed to talk to the women because it was culturally um in you know it really wasn't permissible to engage with the females unless there was a male present in the home or we had females that could talk directly to the women so then you had two two challenges one we didn't have women and we didn't have women that spoke arabic fluently so i think when we we look at future areas of conflict that we that we may be immersed in whether it's in iraq whether it's in iran those type of enablers that can really drill down and connect at the human level to provide solid information that can then be pushed up to higher commands to be, uh, you know, formulated as actionable intelligence uh, when we put all the pieces of the puzzle together. That's critical to success on the battlefield. Those are things that unit commanders can really leverage once once we gather all that information in the battle space. So. Those were two of, of my biggest biggest challenges, probably two of the things that I look back on and say, man, we really could have done that better, uh, or we should really be looking at this in the future to be more successful in an asymmetric war. That's a really good perspective. Thank you. Um, and something else I'd like to hear your perspective on is throughout the 10 months you were in Ramadi, you're commanding young Marines, um, not very old, maybe some of them not too far out of high school. 
What kind of transformation happens for someone in that type of situation that you saw over this time period? Well, first, let me say that we, we weren't in Ramadi for 10 months. We, we were in Ramadi for, for several months, and then we transitioned to Western Alambar province and cleared another city, uh, which I write about in, in detail. So um, we worked for the Army, the 1st Brigade Combat Team. And uh, when we, we came into country as part of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, we were essentially farmed out to all of those hotspots. So, so part of our 2,500 uh, person unit went up north. Some went west to uh, Rupa and then two companies, Echo uh, Company, which was my company, and then Fox Company, which was commanded by, by John Smith. We went to Ramadi and we worked for First Brigade Combat Team. And then we were kind of farmed around as this, uh, as I describe in the book, is like this blunt instrument of war because we had we wielded such massive combat power by our sheer numbers alone in comparison to the army. Um, they they had about a hundred soldiers per company, so we were over double that in some cases. And so it, it, it's important. I always like to give credit to these guys because they do deserve it. And it, even some of the, the the pure marine battalions that were in the city of Ramadi, the army. Task Force 19 Infantry that we worked for first, they had been in country, Scott, for 10 months when we showed up in mid-November of 06. And after we left, they'd stay there for another nine months. And although they made significant improvements in the city, it wasn't until we got there along with other, uh, other Marine units that we were really able to be a joint force and work with our Army brothers to really make a difference. I think you know, having that surge and, and that constant pressure on the insurgency was was key to success. And and I don't say that rhetorically because it was validated when I talked to. Uh, I interviewed for. The book guys did in such a short amount of time really made a difference. And that was something that really stuck with me um, as I. Not, not only sparked me to write this story, but also as I went through the, the detailed process of interviewing all those Marines and all those soldiers and the commanders that I worked with to make sure that my recollection after you know nine years was accurate. And I wanted to make sure that was depicted correctly. So your original question was, how does it change people? How does being in that type of environment change people? So it probably took many years and some experience and wisdom and maybe writing a book about this particular event in my life and to understand that I had 35 years of life experience. I had multiple combat deployments. I had other deployments throughout my career at the time I was a commander of Echo Company in Ramadi. But what I didn't realize until after I wrote the book and I went through and I read about the Marines I'd written about is that they were 18, 19 years old, sometimes 20 years old. And I was tasking these young men to do these superhuman acts in this world that was constantly surrounded by this friction, this pressure, uh, these, these deadly life-changing experiences. And every time I tasked them to do that, they performed phenomenal. But I, I didn't see the the twenty you know the twenty year old kid. I didn't. I didn't. I, all I saw was sergeant 
Espinoza. I didn't see the 21-year-old. And what I was asking them to do and how they did it and how they processed that was vastly different than how I was able to not only process those events while they occurred, but how I processed them after they occurred, which is something that, that all combat veterans deal with is we use this word a lot, compartmentalize. So you, you put these little things, these little boxes in your mind or your, your, you know, your, your, your mental shelf and, and you store them away because you're dealing with the problems at hand. You're dealing with, you know, protecting your brothers on the battlefield, accomplishing the mission, killing the enemy. That's what they were there to do. So all of those inputs and all those pressures that they deal with, they compartmentalize those things. But to do that as a 20 year old kid, Scott, that's vast different than somebody with 35 years of life experience. And it took me writing the book to really realize that. And I say this also is that your listeners need to understand that, you know, combat is not a natural event. It's just not, it's, it's created by humans and we are tasked to do um, some of the most horrific things at times. And it, it, it's, it's nothing that anybody would ever wish on on anyone else but it's something we choose to do we do it proudly and although the marines are absolutely the most lethal weapons on the battlefield and they shoot the rifle straighter than any other soldier and they 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 attack and kill the enemy with this unbridled ferocity they also do it with honor and that's what really sets us apart and to go through that for months and months and months on end is a horrific and life-changing experience for most. And I think that is probably something that also doesn't get portrayed well in mainstream media and in television and Hollywood productions, going back to our original discussion point. But I think each person deals with it in, in a different way, some, some better than others. And some thrive under those circumstances and some struggle under those circumstances in combat. So it's, um, it's a very personal experience for each one, but what we experienced in Ramadi in our time in Iraq, uh, during that, during those, those months we spent, um, were absolutely some of the best and probably some of the most life-changing events that any of us ever experienced. Were there any moments when you could sense that the tide was turning that, in the middle of the surge, which the point was to turn to turn the tide, and it did successfully, that you could sense on street patrols, okay, this particular thing tells me that things are changing. Were there any moments like that? I think there probably were moments. We didn't see them as apparently as I do now. And and that's that's predicated off the fact that we were we were fighting every single day. And it was a matter of, you know, if we were going to engage in direct combat with the enemy, it was just when and how often it was two, three, four, five times a day. We were in gunfights and and calling in rocket strikes and and tanks and, uh, you know, very intense kinetic close up fighting within 50, 25 meters at, at times with the, with the insurgency. And we did this, um, because again, in Ramadi, that's fight us. And it was, it was game day every single day. 
So we weren't really able to see the effect. Um, I mean, obviously, if we measured the effect of killing the enemy, we were very, very effective at that. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about stabilizing that city. It was about stabilizing Alambar province. And it, after writing Echo and Ramadi and doing several of the interviews, uh, I had a, a discussion with the task force operations officer, Jared Norell from task force one, nine infantry. And, and I had to ask, I said, Hey, was, you know, I heard that they were actually doing, uh, like a, a 5k fun run down route Michigan, which was a main supply route in the city <laughs> of Ramadi several months after we left. It, it sounded like urban legend. I had to ask Jared, I said, is, is this true? He said, no, no, it's true. They were, they did some sort of, uh, some sort of event and, uh, the, the, you know, the traffic was moving freely and, you know, the shops were opening up. And so there was a difference. Like, and that's when people tell me, like, you guys made a difference because it allowed some sense of normalcy to come back to that city of, you know, several hundred thousand people. And that's, when you're a company of just over 250 Marines and we're only a portion of it, there were thousands of other soldiers fighting in the city and thousands of other Marines. They made a difference in that city. And that is validated again in talking to those commanders that were there long after I left. And uh, so it, 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 it does validate and give you a, a sense of satisfaction, I guess uh, in a sense, but when people ask me, you know, what the true metric of success was, yeah, it would have been nice if someone said like, hey, you do this and this, this is what winning means. This is what victory means. We never had that. Um, right. My true metric of success, Scott, was bringing as many Marines home alive as possible. And I think that we did that well. And I was, again, I attribute that to the the, the training and the, the the brotherhood and the fact that those Marines were some of the best I've ever fought with and ever served with in my 24 years in the Marine Corps. And, uh, they, they should all to this day be, be so proud of everything they did. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, uh, something that you do talk about that doesn't figure into a lot of media portrayals of military is what happens afterward when the war is over or maybe the soldiers finish their deployment and you describe it when you're in Ramadi is a life of extreme boredom mixed with chaos and then suddenly you're a retired Marine. What was it like for you and others when you return home and what was that process of adjustment like? Again, it's very, very personal. It's very different for every Marine or soldier. 
to make that transition. Some did multiple deployments in combat, maybe four years, and then they transitioned. I spent 24 years and had you know multiple deployments, um, you know, throughout my career. And how you transition and how you deal with those those grim facets of war and 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 how you process that and how you begin to unpack those boxes that you've compartmentalized for years of of seeing some of the, the worst conditions that, that only humanity creates in, in war is something everybody deals with a little bit differently. Um, I describe it for me is, you know, when I transitioned, it, it was a little bit easier for me because I was working in the private sector already. And, um, you know, I, I had a plan and I, I had I'd done all these things, but it wasn't the, you know, the, the struggles that I had and, and, and anything that I dealt with to process that is, for me, I always say that, you know, it wasn't the killing, it wasn't the, the graphic scenes of, 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 of what we saw on the battlefield or the dead bodies or the explosions or, you know, watching others get, you know, wounded on the battlefield. It was, it was, wasn't all that for me. It was, all of that was the, that friction that is always around you. And when you leave that, for me, it was really the absence of that friction. That's what takes adjustment is when you're running your engine at such a high speed all the time, when you're removed from that or or those experiences, you're no longer immersed in that. I think that's a difficult transition for people. And I hear that time and again from all the veterans that I deal with, um, when I go speak to veterans groups, when I speak to active duty Marines and soldiers, and I speak to um, you know all military populations, is that it's really the absence of that type of lifestyle that most have trouble adapting to. So to combat that, um, you know, you need to find a replacement for that. For me, maybe it's working, you know, 15, 20 hours a day. Maybe it's writing a book. Maybe that was my thing. Maybe it's working out fanatically. But for some, they don't deal with it well. For some, their outlet is alcohol. For some, it's drugs. For some, it's food or continuing to maintain that lifestyle of very risky behavior. And that's detrimental to them, not only physically, but, but, but psychologically as well. And it's not just a, a bumper sticker about, you know, we lose 22 veterans every day to the effects of suicide, it's, it's a real statistic. And that statistic only is reported within the Department of Defense. That doesn't account for the, the veterans that leave, that there's no system to track how many veterans we're losing to the effects of post-traumatic stress and suicide once they leave the military. And those numbers range from some reports from independent research and think tanks of 50 to 60,000, Scott. I mean, huh. these are people still fighting that war, like you were talking about. They're still struggling. They're still dealing with these things mentally. And oftentimes, it, it's the, the sad result is they, they commit suicide. And it's a very real thing that we deal with. And it's, it's very personal for me because we've, we've lost uh, several Marines within my company alone and even more within our battalion. To suicide um, in the last month, um, I had to bury another Marine, and uh, it's a very real thing. 
So it's, it's something that you just can't shake. And as much training and as much preparation as you do and you want to keep your Marines and, and soldiers safe, there's, there's just sometimes you cannot protect them. And, and we're very fortunate to have a strong network of support um, through our families, through the active duty battalion that we're still very connected to and to a lot of very uh, proactive nonprofit groups that we're, we're, we're doing our best to provide outreach to veterans to make sure that they stay connected and that they are able to have resources and, and deal with some of those things when they come off the battlefield. Well, um, yeah, and something that I hope people listening to this podcast can at least do is um, try to understand and remember this event, uh, what happened, what you went through with others with uh, the war in Iraq, since it is history in one sense, um, but everyone is still alive. This is this is daily life for a lot of people. And um, one, uh, and you're also my first guest to talk about a quote-unquote historical event in the 21st century. Um, but something that this has in common with something that could be far in the past, ancient history, the ancient Greece, is that a lot of times people can misremember history or politicize it or say these two factions in ancient Greece are the Democrats and Republicans, and that's how I'm understanding it, when what was happening back then had nothing to do with what's happening now. Um, are there any ways do you think that people, that society might be misremembering what happened with Operation Iraqi Freedom? And is there anything that you think would, if people would change their perspective on, could be helpful to veterans that are returning home and help them in this process like you just talked about? Absolutely. I I think we've done a phenomenal job with this generation of warfighters in comparison to uh, World War II and, and Vietnam specifically. Um, is we've, we've got programs and we've got a lot of support to 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 really help them stay engaged and to transition. You know, we do a good job in the military, Scott, about providing transition programs to get a job when you leave the Marine Corps. But we're we're still a little bit um, lacking in transitioning them mentally and, and and psychologically on how to make that adjustment when they leave the military. And what's great is they are able to connect through all these organizations, but they have to reach out and they have to be willing to become members because we can't just, you know, have this big cult and say, you're going to join and we're going to take care of you because they have to want to do it themselves. And I think through awareness, um, through, through really hammering this out in uh, mainstream media and, and highlighting some of these great success stories and not focusing so much on the politics and the negativity of what's going on in this country is an opportunity that we're missing. We really need to have those great news stories on every major media outlet. And I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on, how you cast your ballots, our nation's military and our veterans allow us to do everything we do freely. And when people ask me, Scott, you've traveled over 70 different countries. You know, where should I go? What's the best country? I tell them one thing, America. This is the best country in the world. And you don't know how good you have it here. And I encourage people to travel. Obviously, it's great. Um, but this is the best country. And it's only because of the sacrifices of our nation's military that we're allowed to enjoy our freedoms and to, to say the things we do. But 
this is what's important about this book is it is current history. And and I don't care what academic discussion you want to get into about this as, as a man of history. If it happened a minute ago, it's history. And this is recent history, but it's very important because one, we're still fighting this war on terror, this long war, we're still engaged. And two, we have an opportunity now within our culture, within American culture, to really recognize and highlight all of the magnificent things that our soldiers and Marines have done. And we also are in a great position to help those that, that are in need. And I think that if we if we don't recalibrate the, the, that lens in which we're looking through, um, you know, highlighting these stories, and if we continue to marginalize these great military stories and these great people, these families and the Marines and the soldiers that fought, and talk about them every single day, or or create outlets like your show uh, on this program and other great military podcasts, um, we're really missing an opportunity. So the fact that you highlight these things and have have you know hot guests like me and others on is, is really important. I think it's a vital message that um, is important for the listeners to hear because at the end of the day, when I wrote Echo and Body Scott is my hopes were that it would serve as a, another porthole for guys to heal. And that portal is not just for my Marines. And although the stories may be singular in nature and that the characters are individuals, it's very emblematic of what everybody experienced and that emotion and that feeling. And that, that's why people need to read this book. They, they will really understand that personal, emotional, human connection that is conveyed on every single page of what I tried to do. And I say this as well, is that when people read the story, they're not only reading a great story, but a portion of the proceeds of my book are gonna be donated to my foundation, Save the Brave, which helps veterans deal with post-traumatic stress. So for me, it, the book has, I, I suppose, not esoterically speaking, a higher purpose, but I think if you give first, good things happen. And, and that's what I want to do. And I'm committed to that. And I want I want listeners and, and readers to understand that they're not only going to read a great story, but they're also going to be helping veterans. And it's not just a bumper sticker again on a car that says support our vets. By buying a copy of this book, you're, you're in, in a small way helping veterans. And, and, and a lot of people have a hard time finding a way to do that. So this is, again, it's another way you can help veterans. And it's, it's an amazing organization. It's savethebrave.org. And I'm, I'm proud to be the executive director. And, and we do a lot of great things, help hundreds of vets every year. And that's, that's what I'm committed to. At the beginning and the end of every day, that's what makes me happy. Writing these great stories, you know, sharing my experiences and some of the struggles and some of the good times as well, um, you know, it's it's important to me and that's what makes me happy awesome yeah thank you for sharing that and i'll include a link to save the brave in the show notes for this episode so if uh, people want to check out more about that and your book they can do all those things uh major Husing, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all this with us oh it's my pleasure to be on the program scott i look forward to being back your question and i'll be glad to answer anything that you throw at me Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. You can do that by going to historyonthenet.com forward slash subscribe. Speaking of History on the Net, if you want to dive deeper, go to our site historyonthenet.com and there you'll find blog posts, book reviews, and all of our other podcast episodes. Plus, don't forget to rate and review this podcast so we can bring you the best daily history content possible. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to the special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.